You don't know flag. You Don't Know Flat, a podcast full of stories about retro gaming, retro computing, video games, arcade games, and technology from a guy who was there and still is. My name is Rob O'Hara, but for the next 30 minutes, you can call me Flat. Episode 138, the Atari 2600. Hello and welcome to episode 138 of You Don't Know Flack. My name is Rob Flack O'Hara, and on today's show we will be talking about the Atari 2600. We have a lot to catch up on on this episode, so we're going to go ahead. I've already pre-recorded the show. This is the dumbest stick in podcast history, by the way, that I store the podcast on the Commodore. But you know what? I started it, so we're going to run with it. Uh, So let's all pretend that I am loading the podcast off of my Commodore 64. And while it's loading, that'll give us a few minutes to chat during loading time. Loading time. Loading time. Loading time. Apparently, you don't know Flack has slipped into bi-weekly mode. No, that's not twice a week. That is every other week. Um, I'm starting to see podcast slip go on here. Um, for a couple reasons, actually. And actually, the biggest reason is that I've started uh, doing throwback reviews... I'm going to blame them. <laughs> I'm going to blame the guys at uh, Throwback, uh, Sean and Dor. Um, I've also been doing some moonlighting on the Adventure Club podcast, and uh, I'm still doing little bits for the Retroist. And so, especially on Throwback and the Adventure Club, what I have found is that I really enjoy that format. I enjoy, on both Throwback and Adventure Club, it's usually... Um, you know, me and a couple other people, two people, usually sometimes three people on Adventure Club, uh, kicking around and, and talking and being funny and reacting and, and having conversations. And that's a totally different kind of podcast than what I do here at You Don't Know Flack. You Don't Know Flack is basically just me talking into this uh, mic with uh, wind noise in the background. <laughs> um, I'll talk about that in a minute, but... Um, so yeah, I, I am, uh, now I mentioned on episode 137, I am now officially a member of the throwback reviews group. So if you want to go back, uh, to Facebook or on Twitter and look up the throwback reviews podcast, we're on there, we're on Google plus. So uh, go like those things, join up into our little circles. We'll talk about, um, throwback reviews, uh, traditionally was, retro movie reviews, but we're kind of expanding. Uh, we did the episode about toys. Then last time we did an episode, a review of the skate skating, uh, skateboard movie thrashing from the eighties. That was a lot of fun. And, uh, the next episode will be uh, a review of Goonies. Actually, if you go listen to throwback reviews, uh, near the end of the, I shouldn't tell you where it's at, but I will tell you at the, near the end of the episode. If you listen to that, um, there's, uh, instructions on how to enter a contest and one lucky listener will win a copy of Goonies on DVD for the next episode. So I'm having a blast with the guys at throwback reviews. Uh, I just did a spot, another spot on adventure club podcast. We talked about Oklahoma film locations and those guys, you never know where the conversation's going to go pretty soon. We, I mean, we started talking about 
movie locations and ended up talking about um, owning pigs as pets and all all kinds of crazy stuff. We talked a lot about the Christmas Story house, and we talked um, about several movies that were filmed in Oklahoma, including Weird Al's UHF. So, uh, of course, I'll add links to all these, but uh, Adventure Club podcast, no matter who's on that show, that's a, a great podcast, and they're actually expanding into an entire um, podcast network with a lot of great podcasts. So, uh, And then the new episode of The Retroist is all about Galaga, a classic arcade game. Everybody loves Galaga. And I did a, a my little talking tech segment for that. But even if I hadn't, uh, you know, I always always highly recommend uh, the Retroist podcast. And then I haven't contributed lately to the Atari 2600 Game by Game podcast. And it's not because I haven't wanted to. It's because most of the games he's been talking about lately are ones I didn't own. So I just haven't had anything to contribute. But I still listen to the show. Ferg's show is great. The uh, Atari 2600 Game by Game podcast. So... Be sure to check out Ferg's show. If you listen to both Throwback Reviews and Adventure Club podcast, you'll find that I uh, have been repeating some of the stories. I was just talking to uh, Sean and Throwback about that, so I'm going to try not to do that. I have actually considered going back and listening to every episode of You Don't Know Flack and like building a, a database of every story I've told to make sure that I don't retell stories. That's a, a really bad habit of mine. Um, and, and the problem is, is that I don't know I'm doing it. You listen to the podcast and you'll hear me telling the story. So I, I won't know that I'll do it, but so I may go back and do that. If you listen carefully in the background, you can hear the fans on my server. Something has gone uh, crazy with my server lately. The fans just decided that they want to be super loud and, um, it's summertime, so it's getting hotter. So maybe they're cranking up to uh, blow out some of that hot air. I don't know what's going on, but I've, I've posted on a few forums and on Facebook and I've been gathering information about getting a, a quieter server case so i see that in my immediate future i, I uh, jokingly told uh, both the guys at throwback and adventure club that i'm tired of being the loudest person <laughs> on all those podcasts you know um so anyway i'm uh, looking into that looking into maybe putting in some noise reduction solutions here in the old uh, uh quote-unquote recording booth which uh, the recording booth is a uh, little tiny computer room in here with uh it's full of crap <laughs> uh what else has been going on i um let's see I, I mentioned on the last episode that um i had just acquired the rancor keeper and over the weekend vintage stock had another sale and i went and checked and i ended up getting three more star wars figures um actually I got two that I needed. I got um, Greedo, which is one that I I had as a kid, and I just don't know what happened to him. He, you know, hand must have shot him or something. I don't know what happened to Greedo, but I've reacquired Greedo, and I also got um, the B-wing pilot, which is one of those figures that you just, if you're trying to collect them all, you got to buy it. I don't have a B-wing, a B-wing pilot. I mean, when your name is B-wing pilot. <laughs> His name's not Ralph or anything like that, you know. It's just guy that flew this ship, and so you know he's one of those on there. And then I also got a uh, Bespin Leah, 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 um, which I had, but I found one that had the um, original vinyl cape, so I went ahead and picked that up. I also picked up an Imperial Troop Transport, which was complete in the box. And actually, mine, it doesn't say Imperial Troop Transport. It says something else. But um, if you remember, 
you wouldn't know this really from the movie, but this is, um, it came out during Star Wars. It's a toy. It rolls around like a car. It's like a little spaceship that looks like it's supposed to be hovering maybe. Um, and there are little pods on the side where people stand up so you can transport around uh, Imperial troops. And then there are two doors in the front that are, um, what do they call it? Like suicide doors. They open, <laughs> open from the front back. Um, and the, the Star Wars version of the toy that came out had six buttons on the top. And you put batteries in there and you would press these buttons and it would play sounds. And uh, the Empire Strikes Back version of the toy, which is the one I just got boxed, they removed all those electronics. So the inside of the toy is pretty much hollow and the uh, there's no electronics. There's uh, The battery case is still there, but there's, I mean, the, the little plastic is hollowed out, but there's um, no electronics for the battery. But anyway... Uh, yeah, paid too much for that, but, um, can mark that off the list. And then my wife was like, I thought you'd have one of these. I'm like, well, I do, but not in the box, <laughs> you know, which then begs the question that I just pay, uh, a hundred bucks for a cardboard box. And the answer is no, because it was a third off. So really I paid $66 plus tax for a cardboard box. So Imperial Troop Transport, I can mark that off the list um what else uh, has been gone oh i just got a review of commodore when i get on the computer i've also been told that when i type it's really loud um a fellow named joe barlow uh who's on my facebook and he has a website called sword of pixels and i'll link to that sword of pixels.com um but uh can't relate to this guy at all the top of his website says retro games text adventures joystick wiggling being eaten by grooves all the stuff that made your childhood great oh wait i can relate to every part of that um but anyway uh joe just wrote just today july 15th wrote a review about commodore and it's very nice and it says what some of the other reviews that i've read said which is um that he could relate to all the stories. And it's funny that I never realized when I was writing Commodore how universal um, that those stories would be. You know, I mean, like I have memories. One of the, the things he meet, uh, one of the things he mentions is working with the uh, print shop and newsroom. Cause I, I mentioned that in Commodore and he talked about how he did that. And um, the uh, one thing I love about his review is it, it refers to me as Mr. O'Hara like 900 times. Which the only pe- people that have ever called me um, Mr. O'Hara would be my principal, um, and probably my grandmother right before she would hit me with the sticks she used to have. Um, but um, yeah, you know he. Uh, I mean, he basically says that the stories that I told that he could relate to every one of them that it was very universal, and that was kind of um, I didn't realize that when I wrote it. I didn't realize how many people, and not only. Um, I mean, people have told me that in reviews, but people from other countries, a lot of people have read Commodore and mentioned, you know, that how much they could relate to those stories. So anyway, um, I appreciate the review. He mentions here at the end that you could get both the paperback version and the Kindle version from Amazon, which is true. However, if um, you would prefer, you could go to robohara.com forward slash Commodore and you can order the paperback version. A lot of people prefer that because if you order it directly from me, I can sign it, um, which personally I think would do nothing but lower the value <laughs> of the book. I can't imagine that uh, making it worth anymore. But um, 
but I'm always glad to sign books if you order the paperback from me or the PDF is also available through the website and it's PayPal. You pay PayPal and it sends you to a link where you can download it and the PDF is completely DRM free. So you can put it on whatever device you want. You can put it on um, iPads or Android tablets or on your uh, Chromebook or whatever it is that you want to read it on. So I think a lot of people, you know, and, and I, I know, I understand the irony of putting a book out in DRM-free version and the entire book. I mean, the point, not the point, but a strong subject matter of the book is how we used to pirate software, you know, back in the Commodore days. So, you know, I get it, and I know I'm asking for it, and I have seen copies of it floating around on torrents, and, you know, at some point it's, uh, you know, what can you do? The people that will pay for it will pay for it, and, and the people that don't are the people that, you know, is how I was when I was a kid, so. Anywho, uh, so thanks again, uh, Joe, for that review. I really appreciate it. And with uh, that, let's see. I know, God, I'm I'm so bad right now. I'm so far behind on email. Um, oh gosh, you know what? This isn't even something I was going to talk about, but I've got this email and it's burning me up right now. That um, I got an email from uh, these people that are trying to sell me flat.org. So, um, if anybody wants to put together a, uh, some sort of indie funding thing or a, a Kickstarter or whatever, they want $5,000 <laughs> for flat.org, which just pisses me off. I went and looked up the traffic. I've looked, I mean, they, this domain has been parked for the last 12 years. Nobody's using it. There's no way it's worth $5,000. Um, in fact... It's stupid that I'm reading this. Let me find this email that I sent. Just so I could quote myself. Uh, the last thing I wrote back to them is, the real reason I want it is because my license plate says FLAC, and I would like an email address to match it, but for 2500 oh, by the way, he said they, they might come down to half. Um, I said, for $2,500, i will buy a used Honda and stick with RoboHair at RoboHair.com. So, I just hate domain squatters. It's like they're not using it. They should just give it to me. <laughs> Wouldn't that be great if that's how the world works when you're like, you know what, you're done with that? Just give that to me. Um, so anyway, it does not look like I'm on flack.org anytime soon, but who knows? Somewhere out there, there's somebody who has read my book and loved it and is can um, put together a Kickstarter, and let's get that domain going. <laughs> I don't want the domain, not for not for that kind of money. Oh, look at that, good timing. Podcast has finished loading on the Commodore. We will continue that shtick until I get sick of it. So, podcast has loaded, and let's move on with episode 138, the Atari 2600. Those of you who listen to episode 1 of You Don't Know Flack, or whatever it is, 101, 100, <laughs> um, the first episode, I talked about firsts. And those of you that have listened to that episode know that the Atari 2600 was not the first console we owned. We actually owned a Magnavox Odyssey 2. And the Odyssey 2, uh, the original Odyssey, if people say, I, I always just called it an Odyssey. But an Odyssey technically was the older systems, which were basically um, Pong clones. I don't want to say clones, but they, they basically played Pong. Uh, but the Odyssey 2 was 
the game system that was similar to the Atari. Now it was uh, did not have the graphics that the Atari had. I don't think it had um, maybe it, it on a technical level. It may not have uh, been quite as good as the 2600. Some of that is probably a matter of opinion. Uh, but it did have a built-in keyboard. And so my dad, I suspect, was behind the decision of picking the Odyssey 2 over the Atari 2600. And, uh, you know, later, as I've talked about, he would go ahead and buy the uh, TRS-80 Model 3 computer. The Odyssey 2, so we had an Odyssey 2. Everybody that we knew were getting Ataris. <laughs> So none of my friends at school had Odysseys. Nobody in the neighborhood had Odysseys. We had an Odyssey. Everybody else had an Atari 2600. And the only place that we could get games locally for the Odyssey 2 was service merchandise. And the service merchandise was probably maybe 10 miles away from our house. And one of the things that my dad has told me was that it was very difficult to find games for the Odyssey 2 locally. They were either out of stock or, you know, not many places had them. And so that that basically is why we ended up getting rid of the Odyssey 2 and getting an Atari 2600. And so that's what we did. We got the Atari 2600, and I'm trying to remember. I know we had combat. I know we didn't have very many games in the beginning. I know that we had Outlaw, and I know that we had... Breakout. I remember those games specifically. And then around, I mean, after a couple of years after the Atari had been released, we went to Chicago. We went on vacation to Chicago. And we stayed with, um, I, I always called them uh, my aunt and uncle, Pam and Jerry. So we stayed with Pam and Jerry, and they had an Atari. And they had several games that we didn't have. Um, they had uh, Skydiver. I remember playing um, Skydiver quite a bit up there. They had Air Sea Battle. I remember playing that. And they had Superman. And if you've never played Superman, I, I um, a lot of these games I can't wait because I have a lot of stories about these games. And I don't want to play all my cards because I'm saving some of them for... Uh, Ferg's podcast for the Atari 2600 game by game podcast. But I'll tell you, the goal of the game Superman was to fly around and put this bridge back together, uh, take all the uh, Lex Luthor's henchmen, uh, put them in jail, go change back into Clark Kent. I mean, it was a game that could take, you know, it, it was difficult because all the, the pieces in the game were random and depending on how you set the difficulty switches, would be how far some of the things would be scattered or, or you know, different different ways to affect the gameplay. But uh, but the point of it is is that, you know, in Superman, I mean, you could have games that would take like five, ten minutes, whatever. And I happened to have a really lucky run while the adults were up there watching, and I beat Superman, and it was a, just a phenomenal time. It was like 30 to 40 seconds. I think it was like 32 seconds or something. I mean, it was really unbelievable. And it made them so mad. They spent the whole rest of the week trying to... I mean, I couldn't I couldn't beat that time now. I, I probably never beat it again, you know. But it was just one of those luck-of-the-draw-type uh, situations where, where everything just came into place. Um, but I do remember playing Superman up there. 
I don't know that I need to go into the hardware aspects of the Atari 2600. I think everybody, anybody listening to this podcast uh, probably had an Atari or was at least familiar with Atari. Um, they started off with the the heavy Sixers, which they were called. Then they moved to the regular six switch. I'm just kind of going through this mentally. There's a uh, the four switch Woody, which still has the wood uh, grain console, and then the four switch Vader, which is all black. Followed by you have the two 2600 Junior epi- uh, models. I mean, I don't want to get too much into um, variations and stuff because there's a ton of variations when you get into the uh, Sears models and telegames and things like that but there's several different models of atari i think i probably still have one of all of those at least uh, i know i have a heavy sixer out in the garage a light sixer uh i know i have all the fours and everything so i, I still do have a bunch of ataris one thing i remember about the atari was um arcade games being able to play them at home you know pong was technically an arcade game but you know, maybe it's because I was so young. I didn't associate Pong with being an arcade game. Pong was just something that you played. You know, you had a Pong machine and you're hooked up to your TV or whatever when I was a kid. And then you got an Atari and it played more games than Pong. But um, things like Breakout um, and Combat, which was, you know, basically a port of Tank, um, were games that you could see in an arcade, you know. But a lot of those those arcade games of that era weren't, I I hadn't seen those, you know, but the one that I remember being a huge deal was space invaders. And when space invaders came out, I mean, space invaders was like, I can't even explain it. I mean, there were, there were like, you know, you've heard the stories about there being coin shortages or yen shortages. And I mean, space invaders was just like this giant deal. And then they were going to release space invaders on the Atari 2600. And this is true. My dad let me skip school. He let me stay home sick the day Space Invaders came out. That's how big it was. And we went down to Toys R Us, and we bought Space Invaders, and we came home, plugged it into the Atari, and it was bowling. Now, to this day, I really... Don't know how that happened. I mean, if you think about Atari games being assembled on an assembly line, it's not like you could just accidentally make one bowling, you know? Um, And it was the first day. So it wasn't like somebody had bought it, switched out, you know, the little card, and then returned it to Toys R Us or something. I don't think there was enough time for that to happen. And, I mean, as far as I can remember... The game was sealed when we bought it. The only thing I could ever think was that maybe somebody at the plant had swapped the wrong one, you know, into. But but we definitely, I definitely remember that uh, coming home and finding bowling instead of Space Invaders. So we had to drive back to Toys R Us, change it out, and get Space Invaders. But we did, and I just played the crap out of Space Invaders. I mean, if you look at it now, what a, a basic game. I mean, you move left and right, you shoot, you know. Uh, aliens that are moving left to right and slowly moving down. Uh, just an incredibly simple type game, but boy, we spent a lot of time playing it. I'm pretty sure we had Space Invaders before we had Asteroids, but I remember eventually having Asteroids, and Asteroids was, was one um, I would play, it just seems like forever, you know? Um, you just play Asteroids just 
all day until you got tired of that, and then you go back to Space Invaders. Um, space space games, I guess, in general, were big back then. I've read that, um, as far as arcades went, that space games were very popular because it was very easy to program things with a black background. And so that was, uh, you know, you combine that with the popularity of Star Trek and Star Wars at that time, and it made sense um, to churn out space-related games. It's funny that I mentioned Star Wars because, uh, as most people know, the the first Star Wars game, well, there was Star Wars in the arcade, but the first... Star Wars game that came out for the Atari was um, Empire Strikes Back. And Empire Strikes Back was different looking. I mean, you basically you flew your snowspeeder around and you attacked AT-ATs, and it was one of those type of games that you couldn't actually win. I mean, it just got faster and faster and faster until um, you eventually got killed. Actually, And, you know, I, I guess if you defeat all the AT-ATs, then just another wave comes in or whatever. Um, but uh, the Christmas that I got that game my sister got i don't think it was frogger i think it was strawberry shortcake strawberry shortcake is a the mo- one of the most annoying atari games where all it is is basically you have the the main i think there's five or six strawberry shortcake figures and there's a head torso and legs and you have to it mixes them up and then you have to put the right head torso and legs together and when you do it it plays a little song and they dance and then you move, you know, onto the next one. It's, it's so annoying. And so my sister would, would take turns. Uh, I would play Empire Strikes Back for an hour or maybe half an hour. And then she would play Strawberry Shortcake and we would alternate back and forth um, until um, one of us cracked. <laughs> but I, I remember playing Empire Strikes Back a lot. I remember playing Pitfall. Uh, Pitfall was... An amazing game. I had never seen a game with that many rooms with that much of a scope, you know, and you would run around and, um, uh, of course, collect the treasure, and we would we would draw little maps, like, so we would know where we were going and things like that. Pitfall is one of those games that um, has been out now for over 30 years, and I've never beat it. Um, I've never got all the treasures within the allotted amount of time. Uh, and And like a lot of games, I don't know that I, I ever knew that there was an end goal. I mean, I knew that you were supposed to collect the treasure and try to get a high score, but I didn't know that there was a you know end game <laughs> that we were shooting for. I was just um, you know running through the jungles and and um, uh, I, I've plugged Racing the Beam before the book. If you haven't picked up Racing the Beam and it's available online as an ebook or um, as a physical copy, but either way that you get it, I highly recommend that. Even if you're not a huge Atari fan, um, just to understand the scope of what they were working with. You know, the the story about Pitfall. One of the things is um, it's 4K. It's probably like the equivalent of less than a second of whatever the recording you know of this podcast is. And there's a part in there where he talks about. I think it was. Um, it's either wanting to show the clock or wanting to show uh, how many remaining men you have, but he had to go move things around in memory to make enough room for it to do that. You know, we're now, we used to joke. Remember when we joked when windows came on a set of floppies, you could get the uh, three floppy version. Well, there was a three, three disc version of DOS and then there was uh, windows and then there was the six disc version of windows. And then, you know, eventually it was on the CD and then it was, you know, mags, and now it's gigs. It's amazing just how big um, just the operating system has gotten. 
So 4K for Pitfall is um, is just crazy the amount of uh, coding elegance that went into cramming that much of a game into that small of a uh, area of memory. It's just it's fascinating to me. So Pitfall was definitely a big one. Another big one was River Raid. Uh, Activision at that time it seemed like they had the more colorful games, the more um, better sound and graphics. I um, got pretty good at River Raid. Uh, I could get uh, really far. And I remember one time we went to the mall and they were having a contest of, uh, you know, it was a River Raid contest and it was on a, a giant projection television. And you went and signed up and you paid, you know, your money. I'm sure it was a couple of bucks or something. And I remember that the high score was like 16,000. And I thought, I could beat that. I beat that all the time. And so my parents paid, and they gave me a joystick, and I went, and I did really good on the first man. I got like 12,000 or something like that. And then when I died, it switched to player two, and they were like, oh, you didn't make it. And I was like, what do you mean? And and um, so it was, you only got one man that was <laughs> was the contest. So I was really mad because I probably could get sixteen thousand on one man on a on a good day for sure, but uh, it didn't happen that day. So a little bummer. Um, now, right around the time we got River Raid, I remember we got two things in our house. One was we got wireless joysticks, and if you remember the wireless Atari joysticks, the top of them looked like Atari joysticks, but they were really deep. I mean, they're like two foot tall. <laughs> Not quite two foot tall, but they were really big. And they had these giant, um, like the old school metal antennas that you uh, would retract, you know, and and extend out out of the front. I remember they were so big that as a kid I couldn't hold it with my hand. Like I would sit on the couch with the joystick, like, you know, in between my legs and play it that way because um, my hand wasn't big enough to wrap around the the entire uh, base of the stick. The other thing that we got around that same time was a rear projection big screen TV. And um, I remember um, Firefox, I think, had just come out. Was that the Clint Eastwood movie? Uh, And there was, um, like, planes racing through canyons and stuff like that. And I remember um, playing River Raid on that big screen TV with those wireless sticks and thinking, this is exactly the same. This is the same as being in a movie, as these wireless joysticks. So now you look at it. It is not <laughs> the same as being in a movie. It's very, very much not the same. But So, yeah, I, uh, I definitely love River Raid. I definitely love... You know what I wasn't good at was adventure. Uh, and I did uh, talk about this a little bit on Ferg's podcast, but I had got a copy of Adventure from my uncle, but I didn't get the instruction manual. So I had no idea what I was supposed to be doing. I was just wandering around, picking up the bridge, picking up things, running from these giant ducks. I didn't know, you know, I was so thrilled when I figured out that I could get a darn key and open a door and go in a castle. I mean, that was like the most exciting thing I ever did at that game. I didn't know it could be beat. Really, I I just thought it was like an interactive demo. Like, oh, here's a game where you can pick stuff up and drop it. Well, that's exciting. Uh, Until eventually, you know, this duck eats me. I mean, that's... What I really thought that game was about, I had no idea um, until later. And I, I I mentioned the same thing on Ferg's podcast, but I've I've um, 
heard about the Easter egg where you have to go use a magnet and you pull this dot that's invisible and then you take it to another room and you set it down and you do something and you get this guy's initials. First of all, that boggles my mind that anybody would ever figure out that kind of stuff on their own. I, I feel like, you know, somebody told somebody originally and that person told somebody and then the word must have just got around. I just can't imagine people finding that on their own without ever knowing that there's a quote-unquote Easter egg in that game. Um, so maybe they did, but I think um, I think people are fibbers. <laughs> Uh, let's see, what other games, uh, did I love? Yeah, I remember, uh, I had a cousin who had, uh, you know, that was, a, the cool thing about the Atari was that as time went on, there were so many different games that you went to someone's house and they would have different games than what you had. Like, I remember going over to my cousins and they had, um, three games that I remember. I remember they had tennis. I remember they had Defender. And I remember... Maybe I don't remember all three. <laughs> Seems like I was thinking of another one. Anyway. Um, but tennis, I remember, was a big deal. Uh, and, and again, the simplicity of the games that we have now. You know, on tennis, all you have to do is run where the ball is and the guy automatically hits it. You don't even have to hit the button um, to uh, hit the ball on tennis. You just have to be standing on the right spot. So um, we played a lot of tennis. And they had Defender, which I had played a little bit in the arcade, but it was, as a kid, it was too hard. It had too many buttons, you know? And so um, I first saw Defender at their house and then eventually got Defender. And and it always made, that game always made more sense to me um, using a joystick to control it. I just never could get the the button control system down of Defender. But, uh, you know, with the joystick, it was a lot of fun. And then there was uh, Chopper Command, which was, you know basically defender except for um uh you know with helicopters and things like that uh, but it, it was a, a fun game as well my dad um used to play breakout a lot i remember that but i also remember that we got chess and there's there's my dad was really good at playing chess and he still is i'm sure uh, but there were several difficulty settings, and on the hardest difficulty setting, it could take something like up to 24 hours to make a move. Because basically what it was doing was playing through the game so many moves in advance and trying to figure out you know, what the best possible move was. Um, but it had to do all that in RAM. It didn't have the ability to store that uh, in ROM just because the cartridge space wasn't big enough. So. So chess would run through all these iterations of possible game outcomes. And so I remember my dad having the the television and the Atari tied up for days playing single games of chess. I know there were some other games that were like that. Um, I think maybe the 3D Tic-Tac-Toe might have been like that. And I think Backgammon might have been like that. But chess, for sure, I totally remember. Um, Another one that he played a lot and that we all played a lot was... um, the Atari uh, video pinball. And um, we actually, one of my my good friends, Andy, his dad broke more than one Atari joystick. My wife um, uh, says that her dad did the same thing, trying to play video pinball, you know, trying to nudge that ball just a little bit too far to the left and and snapping those sticks. Uh, Atari joysticks are pretty resilient. I mean, you could still find Atari joysticks today that have not been repaired. You know, they're still working 30, 35 years later. So 
and that that's a a testament to how they were built and and you know for that matter atari hardware in general i mean um you know i've gone to flea markets and and found games that look like they were stored in the dirt you know i mean they have crap caked on them and you come home and blow them out wash them out and uh they work just fine you know same thing with the atari consoles just you know a little bit of uh canned air a little bit uh, wet wash rag and and they're as good as new so uh definitely did not you know they say they don't build them like they used to but if you look at um some current consoles look at um uh you know the xbox uh, and the 360 with their red ring of death or um and that's not to pick on them playstation sony you know they had um their issues playstation 2 had issues the playstation 1 um you know if you had one long enough and you uh, were desperate enough to turn your console upside down to try to get it to play full motion video without skipping, then um, then you remember, you know, what that was like. Uh, so, yeah, Microsoft doesn't uh, didn't corner the market on faulty hardware, and and you could go back to, you know, flashing Nintendos and and the um, pin adapters and stuff like that. But the Atari Twenty Six Hundred, I mean, there's so few things that could go wrong with it. I don't. I suppose there are things that someone would repair, but but I've I've never actually done it. I think every uh, Atari that I've ever picked up, I've plugged in it, and it still works. So. So um, I'm breaking the uh, fourth wall here just a little bit. I mean, I don't know if there's a, a fourth wall. It's you guys and me, right? Um, but. Um, I recorded the first half of this podcast a few days ago, and I didn't really write any notes before I started. I, I was like, you know, I'll just get on and I'll record. I'll talk about the Atari. And so I kind of ran out of things to say, and over the last couple of days as I was editing the episode, I thought of so many more little stories that I wanted to share. So um, anyway, this is the second half of the podcast, so it's not a smooth transition. I thought I could splice it in there, but um, anyway, it might... You know how it is when you you come back in. You're not maybe you're not sitting exactly the same place you were in front of the uh, microphone, or um, it's uh, still hot here in Oklahoma. I mean, it's uh, it's late in the evening, so it's cooling off, but it's uh, been close to a hundred all day. So I have fans on, so it may sound a little bit different, but uh, so that's what's going on. This is uh, part two of the Atari Twenty Six Hundred. Uh, episode of you don't know flat one of the so I, I jotted down several different notes here so these may be shorter type stories i don't know that they'll segue together very well but but um uh just some different things one uh memory that i had of the atari 2600 was playing with grown-ups now of course all of my friends had ataris and and even you know when friends would come over you would play atari when you went to their house you would play atari but you didn't always have, um, you know, your friends over. And there were, it, it's hard, I guess it's because the Atari was so new at the time uh, that parents would play as well. I don't think that happens a lot as much today. I mean, I don't hear of a lot of my friends that play, you know, PlayStation or Xbox or whatever with their kids all the time. Um, but but back then, I, maybe because it was so new, you know, that um, that, that happened more often. But I do remember playing combat quite a bit um, uh, with my parents. 
I do remember my dad um, and I comparing Pitfall scores. I talked about playing Pitfall. One uh, kind of funny memory is I remember when my uh, grandma, uh, Grandma Flack, not really Grandma O'Hara, came down to Oklahoma to come visit us. And it was when the Atari was relatively new and we sat on the floor in front of the TV and played bowling. And I think it's because when you're a kid, you recognize patterns a lot more quickly. But I could get a strike almost every time. And I remember on bowling doing it mostly by the sound. Like you would line your guy up wherever you would, you know, with with the pins. And then the bowling ball would make that sound. And I don't remember anymore. But it was like six or seven or something. And then right at the end you would flick the joystick up to put the spin on the ball and it would go up and I would get a strike, you know, almost every time. And I remember playing with my grandma and she was, uh, you know, she did as good as any adult who that was their first time of playing. And I remember her saying that uh, she had bad vision in one eye. And so she kept blaming it on that. She said, well, I don't, I don't see good out of this eye. Got really upset. Um, Which is kind of funny now that I think about it because... It's not not 3D. <laughs> There's not like um, it was a depth perception problem or whatever. It was just I don't think adults necessarily liked uh, getting beat by, uh, in anything, video games or anything else, by kids. Um, but I do remember that. I do remember playing. Um, we went over to a neighbor's house one time. I mentioned this in that first episode where we the neighbor we went over to that had the TRS-80 Model 1, which is what... Uh, inspired my dad to get the the Model 3. And they had uh, Dragster. Oh, no, it couldn't have been. Couldn't have been that early. But I do, it was over there. It wasn't that same, wasn't that same night. But I do remember seeing Dragster over there. And Dragster is is a pain. It, it's a very difficult game. Um, the uh, I know Ferg talked about it on his 2600 uh, podcast. I, I'm terrible at it, and, and it's all about timing and shifting and not blowing your engine and doing all these things. And you have to do things, you know, very quickly and in the right order. And I remember going over there and watching um, uh, my dad and this neighbor and me, uh, you know, all trying to do it and beat each other. So there were a lot of a lot of things. I think um, playing on the Atari was a even, uh, you know, level playing field, literally, between kids and adults, you know, it was whoever was better at the game. And I think there were, uh, if it was a game where you had to think ahead, you know, something like, oh, uh, maybe dodge them or something where if you could figure out where your opponent was going to go next, uh, then you would have the advantage and maybe adults would have advantage in that situation. And then there were games that just had, um, you know, were reflex based. And maybe kids did have an advantage with that. Or if they learned, you know, as kids played the games more, they learned, uh, you know, tricks or whatever, strategies with the game. So in those in those uh, uh, types of conditions, the kids would have the advantage. So Another story that I remember about the Atari 2600 has to do with Keystone Capers. And this story actually involves my other grandma, uh, Granny Kraken. We used to call her. And Granny Kraken um, was, by all accounts, dirt poor. <laughs> um, 
I'm trying to think. I mean, she lived in a part of town that was, you know, a an older an older town. She had a house. She lived with. A, she had got divorced, and um, so she had gotten remarried. And her and my grandpa lived in a house that was, I w- I would say less than a thousand square foot. I mean, a, a tiny house. You know, it was um, a uh, actually a one bedroom house, and then they had built on another section that became the second bedroom. But uh, so I mean, they, so they added it on, you know, to make a two bedroom house. They lived in this one bedroom house, and um, as far as I can remember, I don't remember them really working. I know my grandpa, I think, was a uh, a janitor at a church, and I think she volunteered at a church. And uh, one year for Christmas, she had asked me what I wanted for Christmas, and I told her I wanted Keystone Capers. I'd seen the commercials, and it just looked. Uh, fantastic. I mean, really good graphics. It looked really fun, you know. And um, she was like, well, honey, I can't afford that. You know, and from my grandma, I used to get, just put this in perspective, I used to get like homemade mittens and homemade, um, you know, I mean, st- or stuff maybe from the dollar store. I don't know if they had, they didn't have like Dollar Tree and stuff like we have now, but, but just, you know, trinkets maybe a a hot wheel car or something like that i i know that um uh a lot of her spending money came from collecting and recycling aluminum cans her and my grandpa would go out and collect cans all the time sometimes when i would spend the night over there she would have us we'd go out in the driveway and we would you know stomp on all the cans and smash them down and, and, and put them in sacks for her so um not people of means and she said, you know, she was honest with me. I mean, I was a little kid, and she said uh, that there was uh, no way she could afford Keystone Capers. And then I said, well, then I really didn't want anything. And uh, I'm sure, like looking back with adult eyes, um, I'm sure that really hurt her feelings. It's, um, it's one of my real regrets in life was that and um anyway when uh when christmas came around she did get me keystone capers i have no idea 35 i mean i'm guessing 35 40 dollars for a going atari game back then and that um could have been her <laughs> i don't even know that could have been her month's budget for food or something i'm sure she shot thought um I was a little spoiled ass kid, you know, um, and I I don't even know where they came up with that money. To be honest, maybe my parents gave you know bought it and gave it to her to give to me or something like that. And um, you know, when my uh, grandma passed away, my wife and I were both uh, working where we work now, working for the government and making really good money i mean you know re- i mean we're not we're not well off or anything like that but but we don't have to worry about money from uh on a month-to-month basis and i would um you know if i could do something for her now if she were still alive i mean it's a like i could go over and just pay for her house 
I mean, I'm sure whatever she owed on her house was what I have in the bank now, <laughs> you know, or or pay off her car or do anything like that. And um, uh, <laughs> it's funny because um, uh, when she passed away, all the uh, there was some minor squabbling and like i said uh this was years later like uh 2000 2001 maybe 2002 um i remember people squabbling over like who was gonna get what and this was a lady that owned you know essentially nothing she drove a a uh, ford escort that had gotten an accident so she wasn't allowed to drive anymore they had a a camper that, you know, fit on the back of your truck. That was like their prized possession. Uh, I mean, a camper that, you know, would sleep two people or whatever. And um, so, I mean, there was nothing that they had that, that I wanted or needed, you know. Um, and one of the few things that I have from her is a quilt that she made for me when I was a kid. And, um, you know, I always think like, I could have had one more thing from her, but um, instead, you know, I told her I didn't want that, that I wanted uh, Keystone Capers. So, I and I'm sure I do still have that same cartridge, you know, but um, it's not like something that somebody made for you, you know. But um, anyway, so Keystone Capers, that game specifically, is always a little bittersweet i mean i don't um like every time i see somebody playing or whatever i'm not like oh my grandma <laughs> it's not like that but um i don't know that's that's just one of those uh one of those things that you think about when you get older you know and you and you just think well you're a kid you didn't know you know but when you're a grown-up uh you know uh anyway all right well i brought that down <laughs> let's move on to something else um, Pac-Man. I wrote down Pac-Man here because everybody had Pac-Man. I had Pac-Man. I mean, Pac-Man, we all know the stories of, uh, uh, you know, the, the millions of Pac-Man cartridges that were made. They made more Pac-Man cartridges than there were Ataris because, um, they thought it would be that it would sell consoles. There would be so many people lined up, um, wanting to play Pac-Man that they would actually buy Ataris to do so. And, um, people talk about the video game crash. I, I did the episode, um, I have a, a, you don't know flag episode about the video game crash and, um, people blame it on Pac-Man and, you know, it, that is one, one contribution to the video game crash. That was one, not that game specifically, but you know, people point to something specifically. It, it reminds me of. Um, you know, in Oklahoma city here, we have the uh, Oklahoma city thunder and there have been many games that we've gone to that we lose by one basket, you know? And so the very last basket of the game, maybe a guy shoots, you know, Kevin Durant goes up for the final shot. He misses the final shot and you know, he misses it. And so we lose and then people go, Oh, well he lost the game. Well, really there's three hours or 48 minutes of game time or whatever, but, um, uh, of different things that could have gone either way. You know, maybe if somebody else had 
played defense better or if somebody Russell Westbrook had made a shot or whoever. Um, so it's hard to just pinpoint it on just that last person. And I, I think that that's kind of what happened in Pac-Man's case. Um, I know that it does take a lot of the blame for the crash, but as a kid, we thought it was okay. Um, I, I played that game all the time and my friends played that game all the time and we knew it, uh, it didn't look like the arcade version, but, um, I don't remember, you know, I was probably in what second grade, something like that. Third grade when that came out. So I, I don't remember sitting around thinking, well, this is terrible. I won't play it. I mean, it was, uh, it was Pac-Man and we all knew that the arcade machines were more powerful than what the Atari could do. So we didn't expect it to be, you know, an exact replica of what was going on in the arcade. We just thought that was the Atari version and that's what we played. So, uh, so I do think that it, it gets an unfair uh, amount of grief in regards to the video game crash. I don't think it helped the industry, but I don't think that game single-handedly brought down uh, Atari. And along those same lines with Pac-Man was E.T. Now, I will say that E.T. Um, is a pretty crummy game. And everybody knows that E.T. is a fairly crummy game. And I think there's one... one uh, what's a good way to put it? Criteria, I guess, for making a good game... Um, and we've said it before, I've said it on this podcast, everybody says it, it should be a game that's easy to play and hard to master. Um, and if you look at a game like just what's uh, Tetris, it's the first game that just came to my head, um, probably because it's associated uh, with that, that saying, but Tetris, you can explain to a four-year-old how to play Tetris. I mean, a four-year-old gets it. You've got to line the bricks up, and when they line up all the way across, a road disappears. That's it. And the button rotates the pieces one way or the other way and the joystick moves. You know, it's not, you can explain to somebody how to play Tetris in five to 10 seconds. And more importantly, somebody looking at Tetris can figure out how to play Tetris. Um, you know, when you go into an arcade, you don't want to have to read a manual. Now, nowadays, gosh, you know, if you look at a, a PlayStation or an Xbox game, and they kind of did away with manuals, didn't they? They they went to um, tutorials, you know. So now whenever you buy a game, you got to spend 5, 10, 15 minutes, whatever, going through these levels where pop-up after pop-up. I'm a fan of um, Need for Speed racing series. And, you know, every, every one, whenever you, you uh, start off, you have to go through this stupid tutorial. And it tells you how to drive and how to steer and how to brake and how to, you know, um, drift and how to do all these different things where... You know, we didn't have tutorials back in the Atari 2600 days. You just picked up a game and you played. And arcade games were like that, too. You might have a little bit of text on the screen explaining something or something written on the bezel. But for the most part, those games were supposed to be, you know, get up and go. And E.T. was not like that. Um, and not that wasn't the first game that was like that. I, I talked about Adventure being uh, maybe not completely clear of what the goals were if you picked it up and you didn't read the instruction manual but but et specifically um the first time i saw et was um at skaggs alpha beta grocery store and they had an atari kiosk there in their little electronics section and and um uh and they still have those uh i've, I've seen uh, recently at target i saw they have a wii and a 
and a DS kiosk or whatever, but you would go up and you would play games, and sometimes they would have, like, the one that was there had a, a lot of different games, and you would press which game you wanted to play. Um, and some of them, I think, had, like, timers or something where you could only play one for so long, but... Um, uh, but I remember going to Skaggs, and my mom would let us. This was in the days um, where parents didn't care about their kids getting abducted. And so my mom would just let us go wander off, and um, you know we would go to the electronics section and, and play combat or play whatever. And I remember playing E.T. and just not being able to, to grasp what was going on. I just didn't, you know, without the manual, without, you know, we'd seen the movie, I knew there was an alien. I knew there was probably some Reese's Pieces, maybe kids on bike riding in front of the moon and, and um, guys holding uh, guns slash walkie-talkies, depending on which uh, version of E.T. you're a fan of. But, you know, without any of the, the instruction manual or knowing what was going on, we had no idea. Um, so it was very uh, confusing from that aspect of not being a game that you could just pick up and play. So, but I do remember seeing um, those kiosks. Here's a funny story. I just thought of this story. Um, this was at uh, our local Walmart when I was a kid. And I think this may have been, I don't remember um, if somebody had got abducted or something. I don't remember. But, but my parents always told me two things. Number one was we had a secret code word. So if anybody had come up to us, and I think, um, I, I'm not going to even tell you my real code word. <laughs> it's top secret. Um, but let's say it was something like Star Wars. So if um, an, an adult came up to me, and this is what my parents were always afraid of. They were afraid of us getting tricked. Of an adult coming up and saying, uh, your parents are outside and they're hurt or whatever, um, and you need to come outside. And I was supposed to say, what's the code word? So if they said Star Wars, then I was to leave with them. And if they didn't say that, then I was supposed to yell, um, you know, and get attention because this was obviously someone who was trying to kill me. So we were at our local Walmart and playing on the kiosk, you know. And the other thing was we had the code word, right? But the other thing was if, um, if anybody tried to get you to leave the store or do anything like that, you should immediately yell and get the attention uh, of an adult, right? So one time I was at Walmart and, um, I'm, I'm guessing this is like a, maybe a first or second grade kind of story. So early eighties, very early eighties. And, um, I was playing on the kiosk and this other kid came up. I remember, um, he was, uh, uh, Indian, like, uh, like not native American, but, uh, India, the country, and he asked if he could play, and he was about my age, and I said, sure. So we were playing Atari. And then, um, you know, a few minutes later, his his dad walks up with a shopping cart, and he says, oh, you're playing Atari, <laughs> you know, that sort of thing. And, and we're like, yeah. And so then his dad says, uh, we have an Atari at home. So maybe sometime you could, if you wanted, you could come to our house and play Atari. Or whatever. Now, I, in retrospect, I feel so bad for this man because obviously, you know, putting myself in his shoes, I'm thinking maybe his kid didn't have a lot of friends. Maybe they hadn't been, you know, fully uh, accepted by the community or something, you know, and, you know, or it's just a parent just making a comment 
and thinking, oh, well, here's a kid that likes Atari. My kid likes Atari, so that we could, you know, maybe we could get them together. So this is what I heard, that he wanted me to leave the store and go to their house and play Atari, which was basically like offering, you know, a kid candy out of a van. And my radar, my little internal radar went off, and I thought, this guy is going to kill me. And I started screaming. I started screaming at the top of my lungs, and I remember the look on this guy's face. Like, he had just, you know, like, what is this child doing? And then here comes the Walmart employees are running over, you know, and, um, you know, and then I guess my mom had heard she hadn't been too far from there. So she comes over, and, um, you know, eventually they get straightened out what has happened here. And I, I feel so bad for this man because, like I said, uh, well, first of all, if his kid didn't have friends before, wait till that story gets around school <laughs> that his father tried to abduct somebody at Walmart. Um, but, you know, seriously, <laughs> I do feel bad for that man because uh, uh, I'm sure he had no idea what I was doing or what to do in that situation. So I I do feel <laughs> a little bit bad uh, about that. So one thing that people talk about um, when they talk about uh, Atari is kind of the end of Atari, right before the crash. And this is when um, we didn't have the term shovelware back then, but that's when it showed up. And, you know, every third-party uh, manufacturer was making Atari games, and a lot of them sucked. And when they... Um, when the market began to fall out of video games, those were some of the first ones that were discounted. You know, retailers, basically what happened, and we, like I said, I talked about this on the video game crash. If you're interested in that, go go find that episode. But, you know, basically these retailers got stuck, uh, and they weren't able to send these games back to the distributors because the distributors were folding, and the um, companies that had made some of these games began folding, and so there was nobody to get refunds from. There was nobody to send them back. So retailers got stuck with these games, and they deeply discounted them. I remember, I definitely remember seeing um, these silver box Atari games for like $5 in uh, our local grocery store. And, um, you know, the, some of the knockoff ones, $5 or maybe even less. And one I remember is um, my friend Andy had got a copy of Sneak and Peek. Um, if you've never played it, it is hide-and-seek on the Atari. And so you're in a house, and you one person you know hides their eyes, and the other person goes around in the house and hides their little person, and then the other person goes around and goes looking for them. Now, I remember, maybe I was way ahead of my time or whatever, but I remember at that time playing that game and thinking, we could be doing this in real life. And that's um, something that my dad has um, kind of, I mean, he used to say the same thing, like when it came to video games, like fishing video games. Like, like if you think about a game, oh, uh, Wing Commander, where you're flying a, a spaceship and you're in space battles and you're doing all this, you're doing something that you can't do in real life. Um, you know, I mean, you are doing something fantastic, something that human beings uh, in our lifetime will never do. So, you know, you're you're living out of fantasy. But like a fishing video game, I think I could be fishing. Like that is something that I am capable of doing. I know how and I don't like touching fish, but and to be honest with you, I don't really like being outside all that much. But the point remains that um 
I do enjoy being on the beach, and that's something I'm capable of doing. I can, you know, put a worm on a on a hook, and I can go out and do that. So, uh, I, that that's one thing I always thought with sneak and peek. I thought, um, you know, this is something we could be doing in real life. I'm I know how to play hide and seek. <laughs> this is not something that um, we need to be playing on the Atari, but. Uh, that game in particular, I've always, uh, associated with, you know, shovelware on the Atari. Um, like that game just kind of encapsulates that whole era for me of games that were just crappy games that were being, um, you know, passed on to kids or whatever. So as I mentioned on episode one of You Don't Know Flack, we got our TRS-80 in 1980. And it did not have graphics as good as the Atari 2600, I don't think. Um, But it had different kinds of games. It had text adventures and it had, you know, um, logic type games and and things that weren't necessarily, you know, they were different than what the Atari could provide. But in 1982, we got our Franklin Ace 1000. That was our Apple II compatible machine. And I think originally, I don't know that it was... Um, mono, but I think our monitor was mono. So uh, originally we didn't have color, but we did get a color uh, Amdeck monitor. I just had a discussion the other day on Twitter about Amdeck monitors, and I have three or four of them. I love these things. And I have the original one that I had for the... It's the one that we had from um, uh, when we owned an Apple, and then I moved it on to the Commodore, and, and um, anyway, getting sidetracked. Uh... But there was Pac-Man. There was the Apple version of Pac-Man and different things like that. And those were superior, vastly superior, to the version of Pac-Man that was on the Atari 2600. So um, for me, it wasn't the video game crash that got me away from the Atari 2600. It was the fact that on our Apple, we had a modem. And... As long as my dad was buying blank discs, I could call BBSs and I could get games for free. And so we had a joystick on the Apple and, and um, you know, so I started getting games like Montezuma's Revenge and Minor 2049er and things like that on the Apple and um, I could get them for free. So that was what kind of got me, pulled me away from the Atari. It wasn't the... You know, like I said, the the video game crash or anything like that. It was that I was getting free games on the Apple that were, for the most part, better quality than what was coming out on the Atari at that point. Now, we never got rid of our Atari. In fact, I still have it. Um, We were pretty good at just taking things and boxing them up and putting them in a closet. And that's what happened to our Atari. It got boxed up. Uh, with all the joysticks and actually with all the manuals and everything. So I still have all the manuals that we had as a kid, which to me is is um, more valuable than, you know, the actual games or the console or anything like that. The consoles for a long time uh, and the games, for that matter, were a dime a dozen. And prices have gone back up now. But, you know, for a long time, the uh, Ataris were essentially worthless. Um, but the manuals, I do still have all of our old manuals, so I really, um, I'm glad that we hung on to that stuff. 
Now, I talked um, in some previous episodes, I talked about um, the gatherings and some of the parties that we used to have uh, with uh, the Brotherhood, the TBH 405 and all those those types of uh, groups. And so I had a, a one of those parties one time. I hosted one. And this would have been in 1994, I'm thinking. And I had all these guys over, these uh, different computer people or whatever, and I had brought out our old Atari. And so I had it hooked up and stuff, and people had a blast, you know. And some of those games, I mean, Combat, which is, you know, I mean, the pack-in, the original pack-in game for the Atari 2600. If anybody has a, other than Pong, it's probably the oldest game, console-based game, or it's probably the oldest cartridge-based game that most people are familiar with. Uh, and people picked it up and played it. They thought it was a blast. We were, you know, years later, we were playing, um, uh, I remember I had Pitfall and River Raid, and, and I didn't have that many games out, probably about 10 games or so. Um, but people really enjoyed it, you know. And it's funny that we all get this question. If you're into retro stuff, everybody gets this question. When did you start collecting retro things? And I think for a lot of us, it's that we, it's not that we started collecting retro things. It's just, we never got rid of the things. And then we just continued adding with it. You know, the Atari that's sitting on my shelf behind me is the Atari I had, you know, from 1979 or whatever. Uh, you know, so it's not like I got into collecting Ataris or whatever. It's just I still have my Atari, and, and I've added to the collection that we had as a kid. Now, I talked about Ataris um, being essentially worthless. There was a time, and this was probably in the mid-'90s. I had just um, uh, started working for the government, and um, during lunch there was a couple of thrift stores that were pretty close to where I worked, and we would go over there during lunch, and I, I specifically, I have an Atari um, out in the garage right now with a price on it, and I left the price on of two ninety eight. I left the price on just to remind me that there was that time where you know you couldn't give away Ataris. I mean, um, you know, people wanted computers, people wanted Playstations around that time, Super Nintendos. Uh, Atari was it wasn't old enough to be, you know retro or collectible and people were giving them away. Um, I talked about this on episode 121 about going to thrift shops, going to garage sales. I, I, I couldn't even tell you every time that I went to a garage sale and bought a shoebox full of Atari games, you know, or Atari games for a buck each. It used to happen all the time. And there was that golden era. Again, I'm, I'm repeating some things from that episode, but there was that time when the stuff was worthless and that went up until basically the day eBay launched. And, you know, people just got convinced that everything they had was gold. And so you started dealing with, with eBay prices and, and, um, there's a, a, a game store around me called Vintage Stock. There's three or four locations here. They're mostly in the southwest. They're in Oklahoma, Texas, uh, Arkansas, this general area. Um, Vintage Stock, when I first started going, had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of Atari games for $5 or less. Uh, most of them were 2 or 3 bucks. you know. Last time I went there, the dirt common ones, like Pac-Mans that are missing the label, things like that, those are 5 bucks. 
And then what I would still call common, I, I just happened to see a copy of Empire Strikes Back. It caught my eye. Uh, and it was ten ninety nine, just for a loose cartridge. You know, that's, I don't know, it's too much. And so it's interesting what's happened to the prices over time. I think those prices are going to go back down. I think they are starting to go back down because as collectors get older, you know, the, the natural, uh, what's the word? behavior, I guess, of collectors is to collect things. For most people, they collect things that they were interested in when they were a kid. So, you know, either things that they had or things they wish they had. So as collectors are getting older, I mean, we went through, as Atari prices began going down, Nintendo prices went up, then Nintendo went down, and I think we're starting to see a raise in price of Genesis and Super Nintendo stuff, and we've seen Nintendo 64 games. So it's just following this natural progression you know and and i think um as collectors tend to get older and they grow out of collecting we're going to see people dumping atari collections and and that's just natural for that to happen but um yeah that was a great great time from the the mid 90s until the end of the 90s maybe something like that um you know because even when ebay came out it wasn't everybody wasn't uh computer savvy enough to get on and list things Um, but by the time that everybody could get on there and list things, then it was over. Um, I told a story in that episode where I had gone and um, bought a Atari, like a, a thing of a, like a storage drawers that held Atari games. And, um, you know, I got this Atari for like five or 10 bucks and it came with those drawers that was filled with like 30 games and, and some fairly rare, um, you know, I mentioned uh, Atari games are rated Rarity 1 to Rarity 10. And there's a few different guides. There's a digital press guide. And there's the Atari Age guide. And there were some like R5s and R6s in there that I got for a dollar each. They were just literally worthless. People were throwing them away. Nobody, everybody thought, well, why would you want to play Atari games, you know, when you have a PlayStation? And and <laughs> there's some validity to that argument. Um, but to the people that, um, you know, people like me that were collecting them at the time, it was... Uh, it was good purchases, you know. I don't really collect Atari games anymore. I I was doing it for a while, and like several of my other collections, I didn't set a limit on a number of games, but what I did was I set, you know, price limits, and really what I found was about 5 or 10 bucks was what I was willing to spend for a game. Actually, usually it was about 5 bucks, you know. So um, I ended up with most, I mean, probably like all of the, R1, 2, 3, maybe 4 games, uh, you know, like that. I, I think uh, last time I checked, I had like, ooh, I don't know, I want to say 300-something different Atari games. Um, and it's all kind of moot because I don't ever play them. I have the uh, Atari Anthology on the computer, on the iPad. It's been on several different consoles, so um, I, I would play the Atari Anthology and the Activision one on the iPad as well. Um, and then there's emulation and, you know, I remember the first time that I saw a zip file that contained every known at that time, Atari 2600 game. And I want to say it was about three meg. I think now if you get it with all everything, it's about seven meg because there's now we have so many more discovered prototypes and things like that. But at the time it was about three meg and at that that's a number to me that's fascinating that 
you would have, you know, that much history, all those games, everything that would, um, you know, back then it wouldn't fit on a floppy disk, but it would have fit on a couple. Um, it's just uh, amazing to me that, uh, you know, every Atari game would fit on something that small. I, I know I've talked about it with the, the Commodore stuff. I, I have right here these um, drawers that I've converted into giant disk boxes, and I have um, hundreds and hundreds, uh, about 700 right here, uh, Commodore 64 discs. And when you convert them, I mean, all of them converted to D64 disc images, it's like 200-something megs. So um, you could put them all about three times on a CD, you know. I have a um, an SD card. Actually, I have an SD card that I was getting ready to throw away. That's 256 meg because I have no use for it anymore. I mean, I had it sitting here for a while, and I've I, I don't have anything that I I need for it. I was going to give it to one of the kids or something. Um, but that would hold every Commodore disc that I ever downloaded in the 10 years that I was downloading Commodore software. It just baffles me. Um, uh, storage that's available, but anyway. Um, I did pick up one of those Atari flashback consoles. I picked up, um, I think it was the second generation one. I think I didn't get one of the first ones. I got a second one and it was okay. Um, we had had it hooked up to a monitor for a while and actually, um, I just tried to sell it. We had a garage sale last year and I tried to sell it and we hooked it up to a, a TV to try and sell it. And, um, the kids ended up playing it the whole time. They played Pong, they played, um, Yars Revenge and um, a couple other things. Um, so we ended up not selling it. So it's actually sitting right here. Uh, if I were to play Atari games today, like I said, I would probably play them through emulation. Um, I do still have, I think I have one model of uh, of each of the Ataris. Um, but uh, I had one hooked up up until recently, until we moved, but uh, I haven't rehooked one up in this house. It just, um, you know, as... Uh, you start to get older and you have to pick and choose what you spend your time on. And, um, you know, the Atari games, I loved them, but, uh, I've played them all, you know? So I, I'm trying to spend my time now and doing stuff that I, I haven't done before. And, and plus there's those other things that you want to do. Like when you're a kid, the most important thing is, uh, you know, that brand new Atari game or whatever. But when you get older, I don't know, spending time on the beach doesn't sound that bad either. You know what I mean? So, anyway, um, that's about it for the Atari 2600. Um, I, I'm sure that I could go through game by game and, and think of different stories or whatever, but like I said, I'm trying to save some of those for uh, Ferg's podcast. Uh, I did enjoy the Atari. I, um, You know, one, one other thing I didn't meant to mention is um, I still have a drawer here. I have several drawers of joysticks and game pads, you know, and, and I tried to narrow them down to, like, like, I looked in the drawer one time, and I had, like, 20-something Nintendo gamepads. I'm like, I don't need 20. I need two that work, you know? And then I thought, you know, I'll have two that work, and I'll have two spares. Okay, that's fine. Keep four. But you don't need 30. So I started trying to get rid of those, but I have an entire drawer of old Atari joysticks, and those seem to stick around longer because, um, you know, they were compatible with uh, the Atari... Uh, computer line. They were compatible with the Commodore 64, so I had a lot of Atari joysticks around for that reason. So 
maybe that's why I have more, um, you know, the normal amount of joysticks, I guess. But I do still have, you know, paddles and, and all those things. And um, I also have a... I always called it my little track and field pad, but I think it was actually, it has like fake wood grain on it. And we got it from my uncle and it's laid out for asteroids. And so it has buttons for, you know, rotate left and right and there's thrust and and fire and stuff. So um, that was a really cool little controller. And I remember playing asteroids with that for a while and space invaders. But then, um, you know, on the Commodore, I played uh, track and field on it. And, uh, but it still works great. So that's kind of a little, I guess, uh, I, I don't know how rare it is per se, but, um, we hung on to that. So, but that's pretty much it for the Atari 2600. So, um, guys, I'm going to work really hard at getting back on schedule here. Um, I've, I've just been so busy with, uh, throwback reviews and, um, I love how I go right to the something that I do once every two weeks. I've been so busy taking a bath once every two weeks. Um, but I have been busy with throwback reviews and work, um, all the different uh, you know little projects I'm working on. So, so bear with me. We're gonna get this ship back on. Uh, what do they call it? I was gonna say back on the road. <laughs> you don't get a ship back on the road. That'd be stupid. Um, but anyway, uh, thank you guys for hanging in there with me. Um, I don't know what the next episode of You Don't Know Flack is, but if you have any requests, things you would like to hear on You Don't Know Flack, you can send them to me an email at robohara at robohara.com. You can send them to the You Don't Know Flack voice mailbox. You can call that mailbox anytime, day or night. It goes to a Google voice number, and it doesn't actually ring at the house. It just sends me an email telling me I have a voicemail, and that number is area code 405 405- 486, you don't know flag. That's Y-D-K-F. Y-D-K-F. Yes, that's right. So, uh, call the voicemail box. Leave me a message. If you have feedback, send to me an email. Send me um, the voice message, however you want to get it to me. Once again, thanks for listening, guys. And this has been episode 138. And I will see you guys, hopefully, next week.